welcome to episode 60 of Monster Kid Radio, the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear, and this is part two of our discussion here on Monster Kid Radio with returning guest Tracy Morris about the definitive classic, The War of the Worlds. This is going to be a lot of fun. We're going to talk a little bit more about the movie with Tracy. We're going to talk a little bit about the Martians themselves, and well, we're just going to talk about the film. You're going to have to listen to the rest of the show to find out. You're also going to have to listen to the end of the show where you're going to hear the song Bonsai Fallout in its entirety. That's the song that opened this episode of Monster Kid Radio. It's by the Atomic Mosquitoes. It appears on their album Meltdown. You can find out more about them at AtomicMosquitoes.com. Follow the link in the show notes. It appears on this episode of Monster Kid Radio with their permission. So we have a little tiny bit of feedback that I want to mention real quick. First of all, Big thanks to listener Keith Voss. Keith Voss is one of the co-hosts of the Further Adventures of Indiana Jones segments on the IndieCast. After hearing the episodes about the movie Santa Claus Conquers the Martians, those two episodes appeared last week at Scott Morris on the show to talk about that movie. Keith contacted us, and he loves this movie, and he did us a solid. He gave us a copy of the comic book Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. It was published by Dell back in 1966. So we have a comic book adaptation of the film, and it's pretty darn cool. I can't tell from looking at it who did the artwork who wrote it the only credits appear to be credits from the film so not really sure who actually did the work on it but it's pretty cool so keith thank you so much i had another piece of feedback as well this came from listener larry smith who may be on the show down the line as well maybe even to talk a little bit more about the world of the worlds he wrote me on facebook and said listening to the episode now No EMP pulse would affect 1950s technology because of the lack of computers. You have to have transistors and computers to be affected by EMP pulses. So the power outage that we see in the world of the worlds could not have been caused by an EMP. And actually, I was talking to Tracy about this just last night, which was after the recording, obviously. And yeah, Larry's right. An EMP pulse would not have made somebody's wind-up watch stop. So I'm just going to chalk up whatever the Martians did to make all the power stop and all the other things stop functioning to Martian technology, something that we just didn't understand. Now, if you want to contribute to the show with some feedback, have some questions, some clarifications, some points you'd like to make, you can always contact us through our Facebook page. Just look up Monster Kid Radio on Facebook, or you can shoot me an email at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. You can send us a voicemail at 503-479-5MKR. That's 503-479-5657. And I'm sure you guys and girls are getting tired of hearing it, but I'm going to go ahead and mention again, we have the 50 review challenge in the iTunes store. Here's the deal. If we can get up to 50 honest reviews in the iTunes store, I'm launching a new show. I'm spinning off Monster Kid Radio into something else. Another show will join the Monster Kid Radio network, so to speak. But it can't happen until we get 50 reviews of Monster Kid Radio proper in the iTunes store. And I'm not just asking for a gimme here. I'm not asking that you just click five stars and call it good. I'm looking for honest reviews. Now, if you honestly think we're worth five stars, then great. But I'm not just looking for, like I said, a handout. Give us your honest thoughts about the show over in iTunes. We hit 50. We launched this new spinoff show. It'll be a monthly show that'll be coming out as part of the Monster Kid Radio machine. I'm excited because there are a lot of big things that I have in the works that I have in mind for 2014. I'm excited 
to see what Monster Kid Radio is going to bring. I mean, on a personal level, I'm doing a lot of things as well. But as far as the podcast goes, I've got this spinoff project that I want to do if we hit the 50 reviews on the iTunes store. We've got another spinoff miniseries podcast that we're going to be doing with a returning guest. It's going to be a lot of fun to do that as well. I plan to finally updating the Live 365 channel. And we've got some travels coming up. I am so thrilled to finally get to a convention that I have never been to before that I've always wanted to get to. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we get into 2014. So stay tuned and you'll get to hear about all the projects that I, Derek M. Cook, have in the works. Well, speaking of things that we have in the works, why don't we go ahead and get into part two of the discussion with Tracy Morris and I about the War of the Worlds classic film, maybe a classic discussion, and we'll get to that right after this. C-3PO. Loki. Mace Windu. Dr. Bruce Banner. Captain Rex. Venom. Princess Leia. Jean Grey. Darth Maul. Nick Fury. Grand Moff Tarkin. Captain America. Lando Calrissian. Cyclops. What do all these characters have in common? Well, two of them were played by Samuel L. Jackson. A couple of them were played by Hammer Films veterans Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Come on, guys. You know this. Well, of course we do, Jessica. Just like Mickey Mouse and Captain Jack Sparrow, they're all now Disney characters. Hello, I'm Tracy of the Disney Indiana Podcast, and my co-host Scott and I enjoy talking about all aspects of the House of Mouse, and that includes their newest properties, Marvel and LucasArts. We also talk about Disney resorts, the cruise line, theme parks, and whatever else Mickey has to offer. Which includes movies, Imagineering, video games, and collectibles. You'll never know what we'll decide to talk about. So check us out at www.disneyindiana.com or do a search for the Disney Indiana Podcast on iTunes. Because now we've got a lot more to talk about. And don't forget about those other quote-unquote Disney characters like, well, Sully. Fozzie Bear. Buzz Lightyear. Link Hogthrob. Doug. Janice. Merida. Pepe. Bruce. Ralph the Dog. Wally. The Disney Indiana Podcast. Even after five years, we're still miles away from the nearest Main Street, USA. We're not listed on the map, but you can join us at www.disneyindiana.com. Each fortnight to the IndyCast, the world's number one Indiana Jones fan podcast. Trust me. Featuring the latest news, reviews, and interviews with on-screen and behind-the-scenes talent who help bring to life the greatest adventure movie series ever made. Each episode has the latest from the world of Indiana Jones, as well as interactive segments, trivia, contests, and specials, including radio dramas and music retrospectives. The IndyCast. It's a transmitter. It's a radio for speaking to God. Available in iTunes or listen directly at theindycast.com. If adventure has a name, it must be the IndyCast. Let's talk about The Martian because I loved it. Yeah, kind of an interesting design. Yeah. Long spindly arms with three finger suckers on the end and the it didn't really have a head it was just like shoulders and then the single eye kind of in between the shoulders and you never get a real good look at the bottom half of it to figure out what if it's got two legs four legs however many legs 
but yeah, it's it's really interesting design. You only ever get to see about half of it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's di- again, different from what H.G. Wells described. He describes them as being more bear-like characters with a, a, a like almost a beak-type mouth. Whereas I don't think you even see much of a mouth in the movie version. So Forrester and Sylvia escape. He's able to grab up the, the, the camera, the end of the Martian's electronic eye, along with when, they atta- when he attacked the, uh, the Martian itself, a scarf with some of its blood on the, her scarf. And right. they make their way back to Pacific Tech in Los Angeles. You know, before we get there, I just want to comment. I want to mention real quick the Martian design. The man in the suit was Charles Gamora, who is one of the classic, probably one of the best Hollywood uh, gorilla men. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, Charles Gamora, I'm a big fan of, of his work as I learn more and more about what he did. He inspired Bob Burns to design his own gorilla suit. Mm-hmm. Charles Gamora worked, I think, the thing that I've seen him in most recently might have been a Bela Lugosi film. That's a gorilla man. So, I mean, it's just it's just cool to see him in this, get some work. He's, you know, we're now in the 50s. We're not doing a lot of, like, gorilla movies, things like that. But to see him get some work as an alien was great. So, just wanted to mention that real quick because I'm a fan. So, <laughs> anyway, we got blood on the scarf. We've got – I cringed as he broke the eyepiece off of – that wrote that uh, the ship because I was mm-hmm. like, man, I, why are you breaking it? That's cool. I want to take the whole thing home, you know. Yeah, that that was another little continuity issue because when he first chops it off, it looks like it's it's partially destroyed, but then yeah. later on when we see it, it, the the camera portion is miraculously whole. Not only is it miraculously whole, but we're able to hook it up to something. <laughs> yeah, good thing it's got you know the right input so we could connect it right. Yeah, and they must HDMI or something like that. Sure. <laughs> so between the the optics of that electronic eye, that camera, and the blood, this scientific group is able to start figuring out some things about the Martians, and they show you know what what things look like through their camera, which was kind of a cool three D ish effect. It reminded me of what happens if you were watching old time three D and you take off the glasses. Yeah, I actually started scrambling around trying to find a pair of 3D glasses <laughs> at the point because I thought, man, that would be cool. If that was in a 3D, that was, oh, I, I didn't find any. So, uh, we'll have to, yeah, go back and get the DVD and, and try that out. Yeah. <laughs> and we also discover that the Martians are anemic and they think, ooh, maybe that makes them physically weak. And that's why they, they build the machines instead. Right. Which now, those of no, us who knew the story kind of know, but... Right. Now, there's no reference in the film to what they want the Earth for other than just invading, whereas in the book and I think in the Jeff Wayne album, we discovered that they also want to consume humans. Yeah, and that's also kind of referenced in other adaptations that we're right. going to talk about. But they they decided not <laughs> to go with that on in uh, the 1953 film, right? So they're they're just here to take over and wreck the place, which I actually kind of enjoyed more because it makes sense to me that we wouldn't understand what their purpose is anyway. It makes right. it even more alien. Mm-hmm. So we finally decide uh, dropping a bomb on them from orbit is the only cure. So they bring in the 
According to the wiki, the Air Force Northrop YB-49 YB flying wing bomber to drop an atomic bomb on the original location. Which, wow, that, that really seems to be taking the severe approach. <laughs> they, they don't mention what the um, power of the bomb is, you know, how much land it's going to render unusable for how many years. But basically, you know, this, this is the nuclear option. Unfortunately, it doesn't do any good either. Wow. That's even more terrifying because I think at this point, you know, we've had World War II and all that. So mm-hmm. we we know what these weapons are capable of. Right. And it doesn't work. And they, at, at this point, especially in 1953, what else? There, there's nothing else to do. We've proved conventional bombs don't work. We've proved now that atomic bombs don't work. We got nothing else. So the yeah. war machines are traveling towards the city. There's a mass evacuation of Los Angeles. And that, I th- again, I thought that was very effective showing the mob scenes and the panic and people's worse nature coming out. I was, again, yeah. a little surprised to see something that dramatic in a film from 1953. I mean, there were people tearing each other off of the cars and looting and violence. And there's a sense of hopelessness as well Mm -hmm. as foresters trying to get through the crowd and keep all the equipment together that we're going to need and that sort of thing. There's a sense of just, you know, we lost. Yeah. And he, he and Sylvia become separated. She's dry again. Strong woman, she's driving the school on the school buses, driving one of the evacuation vehicles. And that vehicle heads out. He follows behind in a truck full of equipment. They get separated. His truck gets overrun by the riffraff that have decided not to evacuate. They tear him out of the van, out of the truck. They scatter all his equipment. They take off. And he gets knocked out, finds, you know, wakes up. We're not sure how, how long after. And tries to figure out what happened. He finds the his truck turned over, finds the signs off of the bus, and he's he's just bereft at this point. He's lost the equipment. He's lost the ability to fight back against the Martians. He's lost this woman that we now discover he seems to care very much for. And that this is kind of the bleakest part of the film, I think, is his search. The mob scenes are great. I would think that you'd start to see this kind of humanity at its worst, maybe in the 60s, like Panic in Year Zero, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. You get that in 1953 in this film, and it's this sense of loss. We haven't just lost to the Martians. Now we've lost to ourselves, and Forrester's going going through the town trying to find Sylvia. I mean, because at this point, the equipment's gone. So what is he looking for now? To me, it's more about finding somebody to hug basically mm-hmm. as the end comes right to connect with that last yeah that connection last with humanity moment. it's powerful and you know i mean we've pretty much done the entire story at this point and we know what's coming we know how it ends and how the martians mm-hmm. are over overcome before we get to that point we go through what like three different churches and again the religious iconography starts coming in here and this is where people aren't acting as if they're part of a mob or, or trying to get everything they can before the end of the world or whatever. They're having church service. Right. Yeah. 
finding refuge in their beliefs, which is something I can see happening in the situation. Probably a departure from the original text, though, yeah? <laughs> yeah. Again, H.G. Wells himself, I believe, was atheist and not not looking fondly upon organized religion. So. Right. That said, though, my understanding is that the estate of Wells was pretty impressed with this film. Yes. And they gave George Powell to go ahead to go ahead and do more mm-hmm. based on his work. So even if some of these are some of these elements are are huge differences from the original story, especially in terms of the the value or the worthiness of the religious figures, that sort of thing. Obviously, they did a good enough job to impress you know Wells' uh, ancestors or not ancestors, descendants. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, uh, but that said, I mean, they they do eventually reunite, and we have the way the Martians end in the radio story, and in the novel they end the same way as well, don't they? Yes, yes, they have no defense against the microorganisms of Earth. So instead, instead of a computer virus defeating them, as in Independence Day, it's an actual virus. <laughs> nice. Now, the way it's handled in the movie, as a modern watcher of the film, I felt a little ripped off. Just a touch. Because the Martian ships just crash. Mm -hmm. And then we get the voiceover telling us they got sick and died, basically. And (laughs) our heroes didn't do anything. It's a very... But that's the point of the story. Exactly. We couldn't do anything. You know, yeah, for exactly. all our technology, for all our intelligence, for all our hopes and aspirations, we were powerless. And we had to rely on the smallest possible organisms on Earth to defeat what came from above. Which I don't have a problem with. I mean, mm-hmm. I actually like that idea quite a bit. As a modern viewer of films, however, I would imagine a modern audience... You'd want to have the human characters make a comment about that at some point. You don't want just this off-screen voice telling us, and this is how it ended. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So I I do have a tiny bit of issue with that, but it's just small. It's as minuscule as like the size of a cold bacteria. It's, it's, (laughs) you know, I I love the movie overall. So don't take what I'm saying Mm -hmm. to mean that I didn't like the film. I love the film. Oh, it's a, it's a good one. Yeah. I'm so glad you wanted to talk about this one. And, and I finally made myself sit down to watch it start to finish because, man, this is, I think, one of my favorite viewings of a movie for me in 2013. Wow. This one was really good. I'm, I'm glad to hear that then. Again, the production values for this film are very high. The special effects are solid. I think 90% of them are you know, carry over well to this day. We mentioned the heat ray, a little questionable. And when the eye is coming in through the farmhouse, there's a couple scenes where, yeah, you can tell it's being puppeted. You know, it's on strings. But overall, I think the visuals are really solid. The acting is very strong. You know, oh, I, God, I, yeah. I, you know, really believe Clayton Forrester's character and Sylvia's character couple of the other people I really liked, you know, we mentioned Dr. Matthew Collins, the pastor that was, he was played by Lewis Martin. 
uh, Les Tremaine played General Mann, who was the, the military leader on the U.S. side, who was kind of in charge of, of the first attack on the Martians and then the subsequent attempts at attacks. And there, there is a Disney connection. There's two Disney connections. And yeah, you mentioned that before we started recording. And now I know of one. I mean, I saw, excuse me, I heard it right off the bat. And that was? Oh, Paul Freeze. Yes, the radio reporter that you see during the while the military is doing their build up against the first set of the the Martians, that is Paul Freeze, who has done a lot of voice work for Disney, probably best known as the Haunted Mansion's ghost host. But was he Ludwig von Drake? He was also Ludwig von Drake. Yes. Wow! And I just huh. And if we move outside the Disney sphere, I believe he's also Boris Badenov from Rocky and Bullwinkle. Huh. He was also the narrator of the Hardware Wars trailer. So, <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, pr- primarily he's known as the Disney guy, at least in, in Scott and Tracy's house. Yes. <laughs> and the other Disney connection, um, I mentioned Les Tremaine, who played General Mann. He also did a lot of voice work for animation over the years. I believe that he has that voice. Yes, including a character in The Adventures of the Gummy Bears. Wow. Just a one episode, one character, but thought I'd throw that in. Wow. <laughs> Gummy Bears. When I decided to launch a Monster Kid Radio... <laughs> I knew that one day the gummy bears would get mentioned on the show. Oh, that's cool. No, he's got a great voice. I mean, yeah. He was primarily a radio guy to begin with, wasn't he? I believe so. Yeah. Now, speaking of radio, in the original novel, now obviously the Orson Welles adaptation is a radio production, but in the original novel, does radio come up as much? I don't think it could have actually, now that I say that out loud, because it was written much earlier than that, right? It was, the novel is from, I, I want to say, 1898. Yeah, so radio wouldn't have been a thing. So, telegraphs, yes. Radio, yeah. not so much. And I believe there is reference to messages being sent via telegraph so in the novel. do you think the inclusion of the radio man at the site was kind of an homage to the Orson Welles or just because that's what would have happened? Probably a little bit of both now that you mention it. I mean, it, may, it would make sense for them to send someone out there. Although, on reflection, if an electromagnetic pulse had been sent out every time, get sent out every time the heat rays activate, it wouldn't work. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. That's Even true. if he's recording on magnetic tape, it's it would have been, which is what they would have done back then. Tape, yeah. yes. You see him carrying the. Uh, tape recorder with him don't you i believe so yeah, yeah. and which so would that not have kind, yeah, kind of got glossed over for in fact i don't think they ever reference again the fact that the heat ray is causing this interference with electric power and magnetics that kind of because you'd think that would have well they do mention that military they were still able to use their phone system, but there was some other system, communication system they couldn't use. But that got glossed over later on in the movie. Yeah. You, especially I, once they get to Los Angeles and you see neon signs in the background as the ships are floating around and shooting things. Mm-hmm. 
Minor nitpick. Well, you know, (laughs) I did like that. I did like the scene where the radio guy is bringing his microphone across the street and hunkering down with everybody else. And as he's pulling the cord, he realizes he's been cut off. Yes. That the the connection between his microphone and whatever equipment has been severed as if. As if the whole car had been. Yeah. Yeah. Dematerialized. That. Yeah, that it's was that was scene. a nice little touch. You know, and I I don't know if you can get all like, well, and that's to tell us that this is nothing like the radio play. I don't know. You know, it's 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 just really good. I really enjoyed that. And I mean Paul Fries's voice. <laughs> so cool to have Paul Fries. I mean this you've got Paul Fries doing some voice work, you got Charles Kimora in a gorilla suit, you've got George Powell behind it. I mean, this has got so much going for it. And mm-hmm. I feel like the filmmakers Byron Haskins, specifically director, really had a good grasp on everything going on here and crafted this wonderful film that, like I said, man, I, this is one of my favorite viewings of 2013. The film score was composed by Leith Stevens, who is somebody that I have on my iPod uh, in limited capacity. I don't know if the music from this film has ever been released on CD, but if it has, I'm going to be getting it soon. <laughs> uh, but he had done a lot of other uh, or a number of other science fiction type uh, soundtracks Destination mm-hmm. Moon for example which I do have and so yeah. I love the music in this yeah I thought the score was effective without being overbearing which in the 50s sometimes that happened yeah but not in this and of course you know you already mentioned the performances Gene Barry and Anne Robinson are fantastic as Dr. Forrester and Sylvia Van Buren. I love the two of them together. I thought they had instant chemistry the first time you see them. Mm-hmm. Now, Dr. Forrester, is mm. it true that Mystery Science Theater named their Dr. Forrester after this one? Yes. Okay. Yes, it is. If yeah, if, if the name Dr. Clayton Forrester rings a bell for to people who have not seen this movie, that might be <laughs> why. Because they, they definitely named their main bad guy character after this film. It's not the kind of name you just kind of would pick out of a phone book, is it? Well, that's true. And this Dr. Forrester, however, is a lot more smooth. Yes. And, <laughs> and, uh, and dashing and charming than the Dr. Forrester in Hemisphere. <laughs> Sorry, Trace. <laughs> I would be willing to bet he'd probably be one of the first people to say that. though. So. I'm, I'm sure he would. And they also did have, man, you know, I keep saying that we're not going to talk about it, but they also did appear in a cameo role in a future adaptation of the story, right? They being? Uh, Gene Barry and Anne Robinson. Yes. Yes, they appear as the grandparents, I think, in like the final scene yeah. of the movie that shall not be named. <laughs> Which actually has a decent soundtrack, you know, it's by John Williams, so, meh. Yeah, I'll give it credit for that. <laughs> And the design of the Martian vehicles was more true to the book in that they were actually tripods. But yeah, you can do anything via CG. That's true. That's true. I I did like the three lensed eye. Yes. In the film that we watched. I liked that somebody was thinking outside the box. That somebody Mm -hmm. was thinking, you know what? These monsters, these aliens don't have to have two eyes and have the exact same configuration that we do just with bumps on their face or whatever. They could have something totally different. To have Mm -hmm. this three lens to eye approach was really cool. Right. And the fact that that carried over to their equipment, which makes perfect sense. I mean, our cameras function similarly to our human eyes. 
So it makes sense that their camera equipment would function like their eyes do. Yeah, I I liked that. I thought it was smart. Who did the effects on this? Do we know? Uh, Well, I mean, PAL was involved, obviously. It's going to have a high level of sophistication. But uh, Let me take a look. I've got the IMDb up. Full casting crew. Scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. Well, looking at the IMDb, I didn't realize that Carolyn Jones had a uncredited role as one of the party guests. That's interesting. Um, art direction was by Albert Nozaki and Hale Pereira. Oh, costume design was Edith Head, who's very well known for her costuming work. Oh, Wally um, Westmore for makeup. One of the Westmores. There you go. Okay. Chesley Bonestell was responsible for the astronomical art at the beginning of the film. Which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, that was that was very nicely done. It felt like a, a science textbook from the 50s or 60s it with the gorgeous painted artwork of what the planet might look like. Yes, and Pluto was included as one of the planets. That's <laughs> right, because it must be radio. Then. Yeah. Because it was then. In Monster we, we Radio, recognize. Pluto will always be a planet. That's right. <laughs> uh, the other, I'm looking at the prop, the art department, the props listing, and none of the names are ones I specifically recognize, but that's may just be me. You know, it's Romaine Burkmeyer, Ivel Burks, Gordon Cole, Charles Davies. Gene Lawrenson, Milt Olson, and Lee Vask. I really did enjoy what they looked like. And I believe Bob Burns has a few pieces from this film in his collection, if I remember correctly. But so not, some of it still exists, right? Uh, the war machines themselves no longer exist as originals since they were all built out of copper. They were apparently melted down and donated oh. to a Boy Scout metal drive. I know. Seriously? Seriously. That's, uh, well, according to Wiki, at least. Oh, man. But they had, I think they said Bob Burns did have one rebuilt from the uh, original designs. I saw that somewhere in doing my research. That's a shame. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, good for the Boy Scouts, I guess, but that's a shame. Oh, uh, Al, the, yeah. Al Nozaki uh, did the uh, War Machine design. Okay. Yeah, according to Wiki, it was actually the model that uh, Uncle Forey, Forrest Ackerman, had in his uh, collection was a replica made using the Robinson Crusoe on Mars blueprints. Huh. So I don't know if they, apparently they used the same uh, vehicle design in that film. Hmm. Interesting. Well, this one would go on to be nominated for some Academy Awards. I mean, this is... This is huge here at Monster Kid Radio. I mean, yeah, <laughs> you know, it, they have a movie that we talked about and get nominated not just for one or two, but three Academy Awards. And it won the Special Effects Award, which it I certainly would, deserved. I was going to say, I'd be surprised if it didn't. But film editing and sound recording as well for nominations. I mean, film editing, I, I guess I could see that because you've got what could potentially be this big story and... I credited a lot of it to the director, of course, in the writing where you kind of just drill down to you just got this small personal story between the two characters. But that wouldn't work if you didn't have good editing. You know, you've got to be able to yep. edit out all the extraneous stuff and just create a pacing that works for these two characters dealing with what's going on around them. So well-deserved. Uh, special effects, of course, so it had to have won. I don't know what else it was up against that year, but – I can imagine as soon as this movie comes out, they're like, oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) 
and <laughs> in 2011, War of the Worlds was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry. It was deemed culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant by the U.S. State, U.S. Library of Congress. Awesome. And the registry also cited the film's special effects as part of the reason it was selected. And they're, again, looking at the wiki page, it says, At its release, the special effects were called, quote, soul-chilling, hackle-raising, and not for the faint of heart. Wow. I like that. Yeah. And and I believe that. I, I'm on board with that. I mean, especially you see the three ash piles at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. I mean, that tells us we're in for something special. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good or bad thing when you're watching, <laughs> if you were in the movie, but you're definitely in for, in for a ride here. Fantastic. Now, you've read the book in preparation of this, and I'm sure you've gone back and listened to that rock album, that prog rock album, more than once. I have not listened to that music in a long time, but I can remember almost all of it because mm-hmm. I did play it over and over and over again. Yeah, it's, it's just, like you said, it's very memorable. The... The sound effect of the the Martians, the oola, particular, just I really like that. And who does the uh, opening narration on the album? I remember, I can't remember who it was, but it's somebody Richard Burton. Note. Yeah, Richard yeah. Burton. Yeah. Does the trailer for this appear in the Sci-Fi Diner in Disney? I do not recall off the top of my head. It would not surprise me at all if there are some clips in there. I don't think the entire trailer does, but if they don't have clips from this film, there should be in there. Well, we'll get on that then. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll make a fan edit. Yeah, okay, there you go. (laughs) Uh, For people who don't know what I'm referring to, there's a a restaurant at Disney World called, is it the Sci-Fi Dine-In? Yeah, the Sci-Fi Dine-In Theater. And it's set up to look like you're going to a drive-in theater. All the tables are in, you know, 50s-style cars, and they're all facing towards a huge screen where throughout your dining experience, they show about a 50-minute loop of classic 50s B-movie trailers. They throw a couple of science fiction-related cartoons in there. There's some newsreel clips of, you know, fantastic inventions that people were coming up with at the time. So it's just a real fun experience for any monster kid or star kid would, I think, really enjoy that experience. Oh, yeah. I mean, we've been to Disney a couple of times over the years, and we always make it a point to go there just because it's so cool to just hang out. Uh, They've done a really good job on the atmosphere Mm -hmm. and the setting and I mean, it's as good as one of the best cues at one of their rides. I mean, it's so good. So well done. And I believe over the years, you and Scott have played clips of that trailer collection, I guess, whatever's being played on the screen, on your show. Yes. Right? Over at DisneyIndiana.com. We have done that. In fact, yeah, we've, we haven't played the whole loop because, like I said, I it's mean, 45 well, yeah. to 50 minutes. But, yeah, we've played clips of it here and there. So if you're not listening to DisneyIndiana.com, you should be. <laughs> On the off chance, they'll play parts of that again. <laughs> or dig into their archives and find it. So, uh, But yeah, I mean, War of the Worlds, one of my favorite films for the year for me for watching it. It's been referenced in a couple of other things I mentioned at the very beginning of this. Buckaroo Banzai <laughs> uh, talks a little bit about it. And I believe in their film, they refer to uh, what's happened here in the, sh- in the radio play as being true. Mm-hmm. 
and being kind of covered up. And then I also remember, I can't remember the name of the movie. I've been frantically looking on the IMDb. There was a cheesy alien movie, I believe, in the late mid to late 80s, maybe early 90s. There are four aliens that come to Earth. They're from Mars. I think they get here on Halloween, and they hear the radio adaptation by Wells of War of the Worlds at one point, and they start freaking out that they're going to get sick and die because they hear the ending of that, and that's how it ends. Ooh. And I, I can't remember the name of the movie. It's a cheesy, silly movie. That maybe even sounds a like movie. fun. Yeah. I can't remember what it is. I'm on the cover, it's the four aliens. They look like little bipedal little people in suits. One of them's wearing a leather jacket and sunglasses because they're dressed up for Halloween. Ah, can't remember the name of the movie, but I, that's the only I thing I remember to ask, from it. I, I bet our, my, our, well, our co-host, Scott, might be able to dredge that out of his memory. I'm sure he could. If, if so, I'll have him call in and add that bit. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I have a feeling Scott watched a lot of bad movies. Uh <laughs> I know he watches a lot of bad movies. <laughs> and then Anne Robinson also would kind of sort of reprise her role as Sylvia Van Buren. Well, obviously in the TV show that we mentioned at the beginning of this, but she also appeared in The Naked Monster, which is a fun movie. Have you seen The Naked Monster? I have not. I don't think I have. So it's a modern movie. Well, it was released in 2005. Sort of. I mean, it was produced earlier and then was put back out on 2005, or in 2005. Anyway, aliens show up, and what they've done is they've gone back and they've gotten actors and actresses that have appeared in a lot of these movies, like Ann Robinson or John Agar or Kenneth Toby, mm-hmm. to appear in this film as characters who happen to have the same name of the characters they're most known for in this particular genre, dealing with this monster threat. Uh, Bob hmm. Burns is in it. Forrest J. Ackerman is in it. It's kind of a love letter to these types of movies. Uh, Brink Stevens does appear in the movie, and she does take her top off at one point. But, you know, overall, it's a very <laughs> it's a fun, <laughs> lighthearted. It's the naked and naked monster. Well, at one point, somebody throws around the word gratuitous. And if I'm remembering correctly, she says, that's not gratuitous. This is gratuitous. And they had <laughs> to a shower scene. Oh, so it's meta. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, like I said, John Agar is in it. Brink Stevens. You know, Kenneth Toby, Robert Clark is in it. You know, so it's it's a fun look at this genre, I guess. I will have to add that to my list of movies to watch in 2014. There you go. You gave me the world of worlds. I gave you the naked monster. <laughs> I think you got the better of the deal. I was going to say I don't. I don't know if that's really a fair trade. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this is fun, man. I really enjoyed this movie. This was a good. good, solid film. I want to get it as a permanent addition to my DVD collection. I was looking. I don't know if it's been released on Blu-ray either. It's a shame if it hasn't been. I would like to believe it would look good on Blu-ray. It could look stunning yes. in blue. Although, if you did high def it, I wonder if you might see the wires that we were talking about not yeah. being able to see. Yeah, they might have to do some uh, cleanup work on it. Just a little, though. Now, there was a, and I was going to ask you if you've seen this. I have it here. I haven't watched it yet. A movie called War of the Worlds, The True Story, I believe it's called. Is that the Asylum version? No, no. Oh, good. Why would I? No, Tracy, come on. Just checking. (laughs) Just checking. War of the Worlds, The True Story is a mockumentary uh, interviewing uh, the survivor of the Martian War. I think I have seen parts of that now that you mention it. It's that one of the movies that I picked vaguely up. vaguely familiar. Yeah, I picked it up 
when I was recovering from my gallbladder surgery, and then I just never got around to watching it. You know, maybe I'll take a look at it down the line and talk about it here on the show uh, in the future. But uh, it's more of a – it takes the approach that I believe the radio story was mm-hmm. the true story ah. or maybe even the novel. It's not really a reference to the film at all. So not like the TV series from the 80s or 90s was. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else we want to say about the movie? Uh, other than Monster Kids, if you've never seen it, go see it. Yeah, don't if be like have, me. <laughs> if you have seen it, get it and watch it again. There you go. There you go. I, I, I would believe this would hold up to multiple viewings. It, yeah, it, it, it really does. And you, you pick up on little things each time, I think. Yeah. Such a good film and such a great co-host. Tracy, we've mentioned it a couple of times. Where can people find you? You can find me at DisneyIndiana.com, where my husband Scott and I release a Disney fan podcast every other week. We talk about movies, the parks, attractions, pretty much anything related to Disney. We'll touch on it at some point or another. We've been discussing the Disney Infinity video game and all the different and various add-ons recently. And as we mentioned at the top of the show, our current episode, we discuss Saving Mr. Banks, Disney's most recent theatrical release. Sounds good. Well, again, go over to monsterkidradio.net and follow the links over to Disney Indiana or just go straight to disneyindiana.com to check that out. And, of course, we're going to have Tracy on the show again in the future. We've already talked about a couple of different titles that she and I are going to cover on the show, so you'll certainly hear her again here. Tracy, thank you so much. Thank you, Derek. I really enjoyed the opportunity to talk about this movie, and I'll be chatting with the MKR listeners and you. Sometime in 2014. More than once, I'm sure. Oh, really? Oh, boy. (laughs) Thanks. Yeah. Excellent. (laughs) Looking forward to it. I can't believe that I haven't seen this movie from start to finish before sitting down to watch this movie from start to finish for this episode of Monster Kid Radio. So big thanks to Tracy for making me finally do that. I've seen enough of the movie to piece it together in my head. So I knew what happened. I knew the characters and that sort of thing. I knew about the Dr. Forrester and the MST3K connection beforehand. But... To actually sit down to see it, I mean, it's just a fantastic film. One of my favorite films that I watched in 2013. And unless my spreadsheet is wrong, I included it in my list of movies that I watched in 2013 over at my own personal blog. You can find that at DerekMCook.com. My name is spelled D-E-R-E-K-M-K-O-C-H. I'll put a link in the show notes, but I did recently just post a list of all the movies that I watched in 2013, as well as all the books that I read in 2013, so you can check that out if you're interested. Well, what's coming up next week for episode 61 and 62? I need to confirm this, but it looks like we're going to have returning guest Larry Underwood back on the show. We're going to get some Dr. Gain Green up in here, and we're going to talk about Peter Cushing. Now, listeners who also listen to 1951 Downplace, the podcast devoted to Hammer Films that I do with Scott Morris and Casey Criswell, know that I've got a mad on for Peter Cushing. The man is, well, quite frankly, the man. And we're going to be talking about the movie The Skull. This is going to be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to doing that with Larry. And then I've got some other things, like I said, cooking for the rest of the year. And I think in uh, the next few weeks, we'll start revealing some of these things. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons 
attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that does not apply to the song Bonsai Fallout. That belongs to the Atomic Mosquitoes. It appears on their album Meltdown, and it appears in this episode of Monster Kid Radio. With their permission, talk to you guys and gals next week. (laughs) 